sermon, not completely, it just, I'm going to quote some of that. Jesus is reading from Isaiah, where Isaiah is preaching liberty, okay, to his Jewish brothers and sisters before they're even taken into captivity, into exile. Before that happens, Isaiah is already preaching these words of liberty. The judgment hadn't come yet. And yet, Isaiah is anointed to proclaim good news. Liberty, sight, the Lord's favor. I mentioned that last time. For Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is the source of the good news. The Lord wants liberty proclaimed to captive people, for he intends to set them free. He wants recovery of sight proclaimed to the blind, for he will restore their vision. It is the Spirit who wants the oppressed to be told that they will be freed. For that is the Holy Spirit's agenda. The Spirit made plain to Isaiah that he should proclaim a time of the Lord's favor, like a, like a jubilee. And now Jesus is saying, the time has come. Surely all that goodness is now ours, who take the side of Isaiah, who take the side of God and Jesus Christ. It's, it's delightful to know that God never wishes to wash his hands of those he loves. And we depend upon the Lord's favor, 
Don't you? We need him to release us from all the bondages we experience, and we experience this bondage. Whether you know it or not, even when the bondage that we experience is self-inflicted, things we've done that have now trapped us or done something in our head to make us not think quite the same. Especially then, perhaps, we need his help. He needs to give us sight when we can't see. Free us from oppression and heal our hurts. Everyone depends on the Spirit of the Lord to favorably inspire and move and manage things. Otherwise, we remain shackled slaves. And when Isaiah was preaching the good news, he anticipated that the people he was speaking to, their children's children, would sit down and weep in a foreign land. And, and their tormentors would mock them and demand them, sing songs of Zion for us and people will be broken hearted, oppressed, their harps hanging in the Babylonian willow tree branches. Their sadness and depression won't allow them to sing because they're out of their homeland, they're out of God's favor, and it will seem to have been taken from them completely. So the prophet back then is foretelling and encouraging them that that judgment will not last forever, and healing is in the wings. Well, Jesus is living at a time and in a land where the people had been restored many, many years ago, to Israel, to Jerusalem and Judea. Second point, I ask you this, must suffering come before rescue? Must suffering come before rescue? Must judgment precede salvation? I think it often does. As sinners, we tend to think of ourselves too lovely. Oh, we're so lovely. We don't admit our faults out loud, especially when we're confronted. If we've done wrong, we kind of start to rationalize and justify that it's someone else's fault or the circumstances. Yes, often we must suffer before we recognize our need for rescue. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a Russian writer, dissident. He was put into the Soviet labor camp system for 11 years. He suffered there, was imprisoned, harsh conditions, brutality. And it's there that he learned a great lesson. Many great lessons, but one in particular that he wrote about after he was released. 
This is what he wrote. It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years. It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience. How a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit, excess amount, excess amount of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good and I was well and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Let me say that again. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates, swings back and forth with the years. That's the end of the quote. Solzhenitsyn had to suffer. He had to suffer before he recognized his own sin and evil. There is a great beauty in that God will bring suffering upon us if his causes are deeper, if he desires to mend something that requires the person to suffer. And it will be necessary for the Jews, okay, to be judged by God for their sins and taken into exile into Babylon, as Isaiah foretold. It will also be necessary for Jesus to suffer for our sins, right, and be judged by God for his church. Both the church in Isaiah's day and Jesus' day were promised the good news of what was to follow. Point three. So here he is preaching. What is Jesus feeling? What is his thoughts and intention here? How is he preaching this sermon? Where is it going to lead? Well, he's come to his hometown, and he is worshiping. He's not faking worship. He's worshiping. His worship is genuine. And his teaching is sincere. He's not manipulating. Watch this, I'll say this, then I'll do that. He affirms Isaiah's gospel. There is release in it. There is healing. It is gracious. And the congregation listening to Jesus loved listening to him at first. 
The first part of his message was a joy to the ear. Verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. I don't know what that looks like. If the congregation's talking a lot when I'm preaching, it it seems like they're not listening. (laughs) I guess those short like, oh yeah, that was good, did you hear that? That would be encouraging, probably. But they were doing that somehow. Indeed, if these things that he was saying were going to be fulfilled in their day, well, that would be excellent. You'd want that. You know, every preacher, I think, wants to be loved for his teaching. And so it's tempting to take the advice of a pastor friend of mine who once told me, only preach grace, brother, only grace. What? I thought when he said that to me, no law, no judgment, no wrath, no discipline. We're not supposed to preach those things? Are they not true anymore? A preacher's temptation is to conform his message. This is a temptation of sin, to conform his message to what the audience likes or dislikes. We want to be acceptable and appreciated. But that's ultimately called tickling ears. God does not approve of that. It's his word. The sharp edges as well as the smooth. And the preacher might not always get it right. He he should. He's going to be more highly judged because of what he says. Might not always get it right, but all of it needs to be taught. It's all good for us on top of that. There's life in it. Preacher is not to tickle ears by preaching his flavor either. Soft or hard. And frankly, some preachers, and I'm not immune, some preachers entertain the crowd by preaching mostly the hard stuff. We need judgment. God's going to judge. People are sitting. They need to repent. All true to a degree, and in its place. But some preachers, they like the judgment. Some congregants, they like to hear the judgment. And it's usually the tendency of a self-righteous church. Because if we're honest about our own souls before God, the judgment might be good, but it's not comfortable. It's not something we'd want to embrace. One benefit of preaching through whole books, expositionally rather than choosing passages here and there at whim, is that you, is that you presumably are forced to deal with the whole counsel of God. However, that does not secure objectivity, for the preacher, okay, can still emphasize the parts of the passage 
that he wants to emphasize and kind of ignore the parts that he doesn't want to bring out or he can't see to bring them out because he's so focused on certain parts. So pray for your teachers and pray for yourselves. Next time we will see the sharp edge of Jesus' lesson. It's coming. Don't read ahead. Don't read ahead. you miss what I'm about to say. But the sharp edges are coming. He tells them. His hometown people. Not everyone will be healed and released from captivity. And when they hear that and he focuses on them, the congregation becomes offended and turns on him. Same sermon, verse 22, dissolves. They no longer think he's so wonderful. Point four, it's good to be given sight. But not if you remain spiritually blind. Is it good to be freed from tyranny, yet remain chained to sin and death? Be returned to your homeland only to defy God while in it again and tossed out once more? I don't think so. I don't think we want the shallow stuff. Let me say it this way. We do often want the shallow healings, the shallow blessings, but we don't want God to get too deep into us. The announcement of good news is not simply material and physical, but it aims at the whole man, the whole creation even. The goodness of Isaiah's news is that it is pregnant with God's favor. It has more fullness in store than simply being brought back from exile to rebuild a temple and a place. And that, after a 70-year exile, as prophesied by another prophet, Jeremiah. What did he say? This is what Jeremiah said, 20, chapter 25, 8 through 12. He was back in Isaiah's time, Okay. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation." Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord making the land an everlasting waste. So Jesus reads from this section of Isaiah, not Jeremiah, but Isaiah while living already back in the land of Israel, the land of promise. More goodness is promised than simply a return from exile. 
more goodness. They're already back. And this man seated in the synagogue teaching is the promised son who had come to unleash liberty on all levels of the human experience. Later on, after this event, Matthew records how great crowds would come to Jesus, bringing with them the lame and the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they they put him at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So yes, Jesus tended to physical problems. But he wanted to heal the depths of a man. What good would it do if the inside of the cup was not clean? Mark 12, 1 through 12, provides a wonderful example of Jesus healing a man where the man needed it most. The man was lame. Most people might conclude his greatest need were were legs that worked. But that wasn't his greatest need. Jesus provided for his greatest need, and then only afterward he heals his legs. Listen to the account, okay? This is what it says. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, this is where the healing takes place, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and the naysayers, the critical. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I think sometimes we live too much on the surface of life. We are sensual people. We're steered by the flesh. We think that if our hip needs replacing, that it is of primary importance. And we get to thinking hardly anything else compares to it. Because of the pain. 
Or if someone near us is, is suffering, that we would give all to make that person's suffering go away. And that is sympathetic and, and probably good, but it's not our prerogative very often to take away another's pain or suffer in their place. It is God who heals. He liberates. The paralytic's greatest ailment was not his legs or that he was committed to this mat. It's not to make light of physical ailment. Intense and prolonged bodily disorders can torment you. And most of us, we hold out, okay, we get sick, we get hurt, we hold out, we wait for it to pass. And eventually it passes. But what about the ones who do not share that hope? The blind? The lame? The deaf? That woman who's been bleeding all her life? These had no prospect of change until Messiah would come. Now here it is. It's begun, but... It's begun, but the Lord does not only offer healing by miracle. He still heals. He continues to heal and relieve by enlightening men with scientific and medicinal discoveries. We mustn't discount that. So a shot in the back, an ointment, surgery, the technological ability for a person to hear a sound for the first time ever. These are all blessings from the ruler of the nations. And in time, our lifespans will increase much more than they already have. Yet we must appreciate Jesus usually sees the bigger needs. The bigger needs. He wants to heal the inner man. That is every person's primary need. The Lord will even, he'll even utilize the lesser ailments to produce his greater result. That's hard to hear. This primary target of Jesus, the inner man, becomes clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the beginning of that sermon. You tell me if this is outer man stuff or inner man stuff, not to separate us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So then I'm thinking Jesus, all right, while he looked at the paralytic on the mat in front of him, having been airlifted down, he saw the healing that the paralytic needed the most was his forgiveness. And Jesus acted on that. Son, your sins are forgiven you. He told a man. And in that instant, the man experienced his greatest release in liberty. Do we see it that way? Oh no, he was still laying there as a paralytic. Jesus didn't do nothing yet. He did everything there. That, mean, that man needed to hear that and have that healing more than anything else. Only after announcing the man's forgiveness for sin did the Lord tend to his other need, saying, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So which was the greater need? I think we would agree it wasn't the use of his legs, the ability to move again. In fact, the paralytic could have gone into eternity while never receiving the use of his legs. But he could not have gone into eternity nor lead a full life on earth without the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus does not want us to live on the surface. Those waters get so easily splashed and disturbed. He wants to give us liberty in the depths to free us there. It is true that he could take any disease and banish it from us immediately. Any pain, any hurt. He could relieve in mere moments. If Jesus doesn't want a bad thing to be a certain way, he can remove it. Do not for one moment fathom that the Lord is subject to these things, that he doesn't control these things, that his hands are somehow tied. No, he aims at freeing the captives and giving sight to the blind and making the lame to walk, etc., etc. However, the important things take precedence over the urgent things. And sometimes Jesus will tend to both things as he did with the paralytic. I want you to think about what you'd be willing to give up if it meant Jesus would become a closer lover of your soul, that you would walk more near to him. What would you be willing to give up? Maybe I should say it differently. What would you be willing to give up to get closer to Jesus because the thing currently gets in your way? Would you give up a large portion of your income to get closer to him? What about your house? Would you downsize? Would you refrain from leisure activities you really enjoy? Would you study more and Pray often. Would you be willing to suffer ridicule, pain, or your reputation? 
Would you give up your legs, or your eyes, your comfort to get closer? I ask because your willingness, I think, to decide to forego or even suffer some of these things, your willingness would put you right in the middle of that sermon on the mount. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When you make your priority the things he thinks are important, then I suggest that he's already begun that great work of liberation in you. You being rich in monetary things, having great health, being well-liked by everyone, these are on the edge. These are the edge things. They're surface items. Certainly you... You can count them as blessings, but not if, not if they're on your front burner. Of what matters the most to you, if that's your primary, then God's blessing has become your idol and a reason to curse you. Discipline you, if that sounds like a nicer way of putting it. It says, Moses warned in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 16, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forgot the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. I always remember a buddy of mine, My older children knew him, know him. I think my younger kids do now, too. I still consider him a distant friend. But he was working for, uh, he was a Christian, and he was working for a Christian who ran a lawn care and landscaping company. And they would go off into these lavish homes to take care of and groom the lawns there. And one time, my friend said to his boss that he felt like some of these people who he knew to be Christian had spent too much money on their homes, their lawns, all this money not going for the kingdom of God or for the church was his insinuation. That their priorities were a little out of place. His boss corrected him. And told him to be careful. Saying these people give much more to the church and other Christian ministries in one month than you'll even make in a whole year. And it made him think. He was basically informing my friend that that it is what Christ has done in the heart that steers what gets done in the pocketbook. It's what Christ does in the heart that determines whether he can entrust things to us even at times. And I found found it to be true 
that a poor person can be greedier than a rich one. Money can corrupt a heart, but sometimes lack of money can sour a person too. But all these problems of the heart, these issues of the heart, in order to fix them, we need to go to Jesus. No matter your status on the surface of things, you seek liberty of the heart with him. Final point, short one, point five. He still frees captives and gives the blind their sight. Everyone here would agree without debate, I think, unless a person is born again by the Holy Spirit of God, they cannot see his kingdom. They have no care for his kingdom. So let us also agree that the part we play during our existence is to help Jesus liberate people. We should aspire to be healing cordials or heavenly scalpels, heat compresses. We should come to the aid of the downtrodden and abused. We should champion truth in the home, the church, and the nation, but first, the truth required in our own souls. As I quoted Solzhenitsyn earlier, it was only when I lay there on on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us it oscillates with the years. Close with that. Let us pray. Lord, Some things when, sometimes when things seem to be going well, we get maybe too much of a pep in our step. Maybe we get too full of ourselves. And uh, that's, that's hurtful. That's harmful to us and to our family and church and employment. I just pray that you would work in us that we uh, can be meek that we're willing to be persecuted, that we can be contrite before you and humble before men. Heal us. Amen. Will the deacons please